first and hopefully not last guest to Noetic Nomads. He's a former international banker, school headmaster, a spiritual seeker and guide, someone who's helped me so much on my own journey, a husband, a father to many kids much older and younger than I am, and so many other aspects which I hope to get into today. Ladies, gentlemen, and everyone uh, non-binary, he is Robert Robin Lever. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. In your own words, uh, can you inform our lovely audience how it came to be that you made the acquaintance of this weirdo over here? Well, um, uh, it began with me, with Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, who's, uh, I saw a couple of his pieces on YouTube and uh, was smitten by him. And he led me to Rebel Wisdom and Rebel Wisdom put me in a pod group with you. Uh, what exactly was it about Dan Schmachtenberger that, that got you so interested? Um, it comes down to two terms, which he uh, either coined or stole. Uh, doesn't matter. The first was rivalrous tribalism as a description of what we're facing in the world today, and which has been going on for 12,000 years. Uh, and the second was collaborative holism, which is the alternative context to rivalrous tribalism. And when he started talking about it, I immediately uh, realized that if we don't make the transformation from rivalrous tribalism to collaborative holism, we're going to go extinct. We may go extinct anyway. Uh, we certainly don't have a lot of time, but it's a wonderful challenge and it's the way I want to spend my life. So that's what I've been doing. A few years ago, I began to investigate the question, what is the problem modern society is facing? I gradually went deeper and deeper from political issues, economic issues, to national issues, deeper and deeper until I came to the point where I uh, was uh, addressing the problem as a sociological problem. My thinking at that point was some things have happened over the past 2,000 years, which were very exciting while they were occurring, but may have proven to be quite negative. Uh, and they are, number one, the radical increase in population. The population of planet Earth was about uh, 300,000, 400,000 in the year zero, and in the 2020 years, it's gone to almost 8 billion. So there is that huge increase in population. At the same time, particularly from the 1400s, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, there's been uh, an explosion of technology, science and technology. And at the same time, as happens in all modern societies, our language has become increasingly more abstract. We, it's, it's, it's larger and it's more abstract, which means that abstraction, as you know, is a left brain function, which means that we have gradually moved from a right brain orientation, which is a, an inductive reasoning, to a left brain orientation, which is more deductive reasoning. 
to the point where we're now in imbalance, which you would expect with this radical increase in technology and the population explosion. And the fourth thing is the way in which we organize ourselves. Because we come from this tribal tradition, we have organized these 8 billion people according to nationalities now and religious institutions and so on, we have organized ourselves with a leadership hierarchy and the lead. And the leadership hierarchy has become much more sophisticated with the technology and their uh, understanding of uh, psychology. It doesn't take a leadership hierarchy very long to realize that there's a fundamental conflict of interest between the leaders and the lead. And the leaders have to control the lead in order to get the leaders objectives met. And they have become increasingly more sophisticated about doing this. And they have done it primarily by the creation of such things as neoliberal capitalism, uh, which are which are fundamentally uh, left-brain functions. And the world has continued in that path uh, and become increasingly more so to the extent that in the 60s with the, with the four assassinations of our really intuitive right-brain leaders, it became patently obvious that the deep state, the ruling class, intended to make this a neoliberal capitalistic system. I was in my 20s when President Kennedy was killed, early 20s. And so this has been the dominant influence in my life and has challenged me to try to understand what is going on here. I remember in our intro uh, Sense Making 101 session, and I couldn't help but have my ears perk up when you said that you were a friend of the Rockefellers. I don't know if I'm misremembering that, but like, I think that's very interesting, especially what you're talking about the deep state. You were an international banker and then something happened and then you're like, you know what, I'm out of here. There's something wrong. So if you could just uh, oblige us and bring us back to the beginning and how your journey started. Sure, I'm a fairly prototypical middle-class American. I was born into fairly humble origins. My father was a salesman in business. My mother was an artist, which meant that I had an early combination of right and left brain reasoning. My father was gone in my early childhood, and I spent most of my time with my horse and uh, dog or with my mother and sisters. And my mother introduced me to art, and she and I would uh, spend a lot of time making art together. When I was about 12, my father came back into my life and assertively took it over and uh, scorned my efforts as an artist and drove me to become a high-achieving, uh, yanged-out leader. And uh, he got me into an exclusive prep school from which I went to Brown University. This is interesting, actually. At, at Brown, I majored in English literature and minored in art. And when Brown ended, I went to business school at Dartmouth. So I flip-flopped back and forth. And, and, and the reason I went to business school was because I had been sold on the idea that you had to lead a practice, you had to be competent and accountable and practical and know how to get things done, which would prove your value in business. Um, yeah, real quick. I mean, that's a big parallel because I got my major in, in business and engineering, but my minor was in philosophy. That's my love. <laughs> That's why, you know, and it's just like, oh, I got to get the practical stuff where I'm like, this is my love. Like, like, you know, can I cultivate this a little bit? So I completely get what you're getting from. Yeah. Where you're coming from. Yeah, I know you do. I've, I've noticed that about you, that we are kindred spirits. Yes. In that. Well, so I, I went into business. The Rockefeller family had many uh, members attend Dartmouth. And so Nelson Rockefeller's son, Rodman, interviewed 
at the Tuck School, the business school, and I uh, was offered a job in the Rockefeller Company, the International Basic Economy Corporation. And I, uh, I took the offer, delighted, and was sent to South America and had a wonderful time. And I spent short periods of time, short visits with uh, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, his son, Rodman, and uh, subsequently with Lawrence Rockefeller. When I became a secondary school headmaster in Woodstock, Vermont, he lived there and he was a donor to our school. And so I knew all three of them a little bit, uh, Rodman probably better than the other two, but I knew them well enough to know that they uh, were very gracious and charming and wanted the best for humankind with the qualification that no matter what they did, they would retain and increase their wealth and power and control. This was the first time I heard about the New World Order, about one world government, which they talked about as inevitable. And they talked about uh, population control as inevitable, but in the nicest ways. Those of us uh, who uh, were not <laughs> exterminated were going to uh, lead much better lives. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I knew them a little bit, and I liked them all. Uh, they were unfailingly fun to hang out with. I left IBEC because I was in South America. I discovered that Nelson Rockefeller, who had been under Secretary of State for Latin America, was committing, uh, uh, my company was set up to help develop the economies of the countries in South America and around the world, underdeveloped countries, by such things as uh, chicken farming, supermarkets, mutual funds, get the money out of the mattresses and into the economy, those kinds of things. Uh, but at the same time that we were working in IBEC to do that, Nelson Rockefeller was committing genocide in the Amazon Valley in order to get the oil out under Standard Oil. When I realized what I was dealing with, I left them. And through a strange set of circumstances, I became an international banker for the Bank of Boston, which was a wonderful institution. And I did that for a while. I was a sort of a poor man's economic hitman, if you know that term. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about, like the John Perkins. Like, you were that guy? Well, not he that was, guy. He was down the street from me. I didn't oh. know him at the time. But, oh, uh, wow. I was doing basically the same kind of thing. Uh, we were lending money to people who would not be able to repay it. Then we were selling the loans to the federal government, and they were foreclosing and taking the asset or cutting deals uh, that suited our government, our foreign policy. Oh, wait, wait. just to circle back, um, just clarify. So like, you mean John Perkins, you were working at the same time, but he was in like another country? No, no, or... he was uh, down the street. He was also- Literally down the street. He worked, yeah, he worked for a, <laughs> an engineering firm. Wow. This firm did the, did the economic models, uh, modeling that oh, yes. uh, uh, enabled countries to get federal loans from our country. Uh, and in fact, what happened in many of those was that the uh, the oligarchy of these recipient countries stole the money and ran off to Switzerland and leaving the debt on the people's hands and the people couldn't make the payments and so foreclosure ensued. I was at a UNIDO conference actually uh, where I was a speaker and I was coming back from that one day and uh, I looked in the mirror of the men's room on my airplane and I realized my father had an expression that he, a derogatory expression that he used on people he particularly didn't like. He would say that they had become as shallow as a plate of piss. And I looked in the mirror, my father was deceased by then. I looked in the mirror and I realized that that had happened to me. I was wearing my Kilgore Stanbury tailored suit and I looked pretty sharp. 
but I was totally vapid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Inside, whew, rotten outside. Ooh, pristine, right? Yeah. I've noticed that uh, a lot of your writings that you talk about uh, Alfred Korzybski and I had no idea who he was. Right. And then I did a little bit of research. Oh, he's like, Oh, he's the guy that came up with the maxim. The map is not the territory. Oh, so he's that guy. So, uh, so I'd like to know like how his work had uh, impact on your personal philosophy. Well, for those of you watching this, uh, who don't know who he was, uh, he was a very famous linguist. Think about a hundred years ago, his basic message was what you say a thing is, it isn't. Mm. He was making the distinction between the unknowable reality, which we don't have the sense or the intelligence to know, as opposed to our abstractions of that reality, which we uh, can create and adopt. The game of language is that you're not allowed to remember that you're making up symbols to describe an unknowable reality while you're doing it. Otherwise, you couldn't play the game. And so we pretend that our symbols are the real thing. And our symbols, being abstractions, are very limited. Not only do they not describe the real thing, but they're subject to manipulation by those who take greater control over your consciousness and who want to direct you in one way or another. The thing that got me about Korzybiski was he told a story about he went into his lecture hall one day, told his class that he had been given a box of cookies, homemade cookies. And he handed them out and people ate them. And then he explained that they weren't, in fact, they were not cookies. They were dog biscuits. And by, that was his way of pointing out that, you know, what you believe is your truth. I'm reading a book I'm marketing right now. And like one of the examples is like, they give a bunch of hoity-toity people, right? Pate and dog food. They yeah, told yeah. them both it was pate. They could not distinguish what was pate and what was dog food, which just shows how, like, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, people just, they just buy into the concept and this, this, this makes our consumer society, like, it makes it what it is because we're just told we're supposed to like this. Oh, I like this. It's like, without any thought of what, of what truly it is, if there is such a thing. We are reacting to the way we've been taught, the way countless generations for 15,000 years since the beginning of the agricultural revolution have been acculturated. I don't know whether you know E.O. Wilson, world-famous biologist. He's very clear that tribalism is going to do us in unless we do it in. And tribalism, he also points out this fascinating element of tribalism. He said there are three things or three components to tribalism. The first is you have to subscribe to the origination myth. Now you think about this country and the myth. These founding fathers were determined to set up the perfect democracy. I mean, you know. It's crazy. Yeah. Except for the fact that black people had to be slaves or exterminated and women couldn't vote. The only people who could vote were male, white male property owners. Otherwise, it was a nice little democracy. So the first thing was that you had to buy, if you were going to be a member of a tribe, you had to buy the origination myth. The second was that you had to acquiesce to tribal authority, which means you had to subordinate yourself as the lead to the whims of the leadership hierarchy. And the third was that you had to discriminate against outsiders. These are the three elements of tribalism that are driving us to extinction. And why we're not waking up 
in understanding that. This is not a rocket science, but some of us are. And so uh, it's so exciting to be part of that group. And I applaud this effort that you're making because I think fundamentally, if you're, if you, <laughs> since you invited me on your show, I'm assuming that you're really interested in this overriding issue of transforming civilization into something that's habitable. Yeah, you're damn right, yes. And uh, how old are you, 25? <laughs> Robin, did you forget? I actually just had my birthday. I'm, you're close, you're off by 11 years. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, I know, I don't look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Asian, what do you expect, sorry. You know. Yeah. Well, you're young enough so that... Uh, yeah, my soul is... I still have the soul of a 15-year-old, so that's okay. 50 years yeah. To live with the mess we've created. Yeah. I have children from 60 to 16. I'm really wanting to at least model engagement in the effort to fix this shit show for my children. Whether we succeed or not, it's, uh, it's a great way to spend my life. Exactly. You got to at least try. That's it. I mean, I love that so much. People of my generation are utterly appalled at the loss of general competence. Most people can't change the tire on their car, much less the oil. And this reason is because there has been so much emphasis placed on indirect experience. And now with these devices, I, I, I'm, really, I'm really frightened to see how little these kids experience. Older people, were, we were outside all, all day long, every day after school, rain or shine. I had a campsite up in the woods and I used to would go there with my dog and pony and have a fire. None of that is going on today. This loss of direct experience and competence makes people more vulnerable to the bullshit they're being fed as part of their acculturation. So you've got the combination of those things. So one of the things that has to happen is you have to stop people. One of the things that I teach and it will be part of 10 syllables is, what is this person saying? What do they mean by it? And what am I going to do about it? You gotta stop, look and listen and challenge yourself to submit to that discipline before your response as part of your interpretation and before your response. The leadership hierarchy learned a little bit about psychology and a great deal about mass communication technology uh, and have decided that they're going to manage us completely. Mm -hmm. uh, I just ran across a book the other day uh, about the CIA's involvement in the publishing business. Mm -hmm. They are everywhere and you don't know which books they've financed and which books they've kept out of print. They're equally pervasive in Hollywood. And this thing that's going on in Hollywood is a really interesting symptom of the extent to which we have devolved this pederasty issue. <laughs> oh my God. Preach, uh, Robin, preach. You know, I, I, I don't want to talk about pederasty per se, but I, I want to point out that it's probably one of the most heinous crimes uh, in a society, any society that allows its children to be treated as the way, as our society allows our children to be treated. And I'm not just talking about pederasty, I'm talking about education too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Bessie DeVos is not, uh, is not wanting to, uh, uh, to educate integrated people. The whole system is trying to avoid that. I mean, think for example about 
any school you've ever, or college, any school or college you've ever heard of who taught self-understanding and personal integration. Exactly. None. They teach skills to be a cog in the machine. They don't tell you to be autonomous. So so we have this glaring symptom of the underlying decay in our society in pederasty, and yet they cannot solve any of the crimes. We know nothing about Epstein who flew on his plane. We don't even know where his money came from or what the circumstances were. We know nothing of I, I read somewhere that 80 children were discovered a week or so ago. 80 children 80. Who, had been, who had been picked up. Uh, something like a half a million children disappear in this country every year. And we have not chosen to solve that problem. I mean, uh, I just saw a, a, a documentary. It's actually on YouTube. If you search for it, it's called Out of Shadows. It's, it's a stuntman who like oh, yeah, got... Yeah, oh, you saw it? Oh, so for uh, the audience, he was a Hollywood stuntman. He was one of the biggest stuntmen in Hollywood. And he was doing, you know, he was working with all these Hollywood stars. And one day he like got a really bad injury and he was working with his physical therapist and his physical therapist said, hey, is it okay if I pray for you? And the stuntman was like, Okay, fine, whatever. I'm not into that, but go ahead. And then she kept doing it. And then one day he was like, why do you keep doing this? Like, do you really believe in this stuff? She's like, she was like, honey, if you've seen what I've seen happen to these kids in Hollywood and I have to come and fix them, you would pray too for all the evil that's going on. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so yeah, there, I mean, we've heard, I mean, I'm sure anyone who's dug into this at all, I mean, they've heard about these pedophile Hollywood stuff but I mean like with this Epstein stuff it's getting super real and it's just like man it's, it's just nuts one of the things that really was profound for me and that at first I was like what is Robin talking about how your definition of love and your definition of love uh hopefully I'm not bastardizing it is unbiased listening and I didn't get that at first right and I was like love is listening but then as we did the course and then uh, as I listened to you and I was open to you and you listened to me and I even cried on cam, which is embarrassing, but <laughs> it's really important for me, even more possibly importantly, which goes to what you're saying before, that I was able to listen to myself. Cause I said like my goal going into the course was like, I want to find out who I am and what I really want. And I was like, and by listening to myself, this unbiased listening, this love of myself, I was able to tap into who I am. I was like, wow. And then I feel this yeah. healing. Yep. And then I feel this emergence of this capacity. And now I'm like, oh, now I know what I want. And I'm doing it right now. Hopefully it doesn't blow up tomorrow. But like, hopefully this is the start of something new. And thank you so much for that, Robin. I just wanted to say. As you know, I've, I've been involved in a number of uh, miraculous healings. And uh, what they have taught me is a couple of things. Uh, number one, it's about energy. Healing is about energy and uh, not uh, projected energy, but elicited energy. I can't heal uh, a creature, but I can elicit the creature's energy, which will heal the creature. And the second thing is you can't do it on demand because if you have that as your intention, that corrupts the effectiveness of the eliciting. What I've learned from those experiences is that we're all eliciting or projecting energy with other people and other creatures all the time. And so uh, 
maybe we should be a little bit more intentional about listening instead of asserting all the time. We come from a, this uh, tribalistic civilization is one that places the emphasis on asserting rather than listening. And if you look at other civilizations, the American Indians, for example, their whole culture was based on listening to nature and responding as they felt nature was telling them was appropriate. Whereas we are biased into trying to control nature, to assert control over nature. And so all of us are engaged in this transferal of energy both ways. But I don't think most people realize that they are healing other people when they listen to them. And if they can listen to them with an absence of bias, such that they don't continually interpret what they're hearing, they just listen to it, that is much more powerful eliciting energy and is much more healing. Whether it's your dog, your students, your wife, your children, this comes back to this question of stopping and asking yourself, what is this person saying? Why are they saying it? And what am I going to do about it? I mean, you do that three or four times. Really, it doesn't take that long. You do that a few times, and you get that your job is to sit down, shut up, and listen, and that it has miraculous effects on those around you, on yourself, as you pointed out. And that's what's going to enable us to heal the world. Because one of the things we all have to do is process and resolve. If you don't resolve things, you carry them forward in their unresolved state. And they build this huge weight on your psyche and on your perceptual processes and on your interpretations. They clog you up. And so we all have to process and resolve continually so that we put things behind us and we don't have to carry them forward in their unresolved state. If we remind ourselves of that, then the prescription, what we are to do about it, both within ourselves and with others, is to listen to them. Because when you listen, you will elicit their processing. And when they process, they resolve whether it's in the conventional therapeutic, psychotherapeutic relationship or with the Acadia flycatcher in Maine. Uh, that's how it works. And that, uh, again, is, uh, uh, is the opposite of our bias in modern society. You know, how much have we listened to Gaia, to Mother Earth? We refuse to listen. How much are we listening to the, the children in our society? We are refusing to listen. Did you want me to make an observation or ask you a question? Oh, uh, just wh whatever you feel your, is a lie for you. What fulfills you? What fulfills me? Uh, right now? Talking no, to you? Right now, in general. In general. What fulfills me? I want to create a world where no one has to suffer. Like, that's basically what it is. I mean, like, I'm almost an extremist in that case. Like, I'm almost, I'm, like, in the past, I've been, like, an antinatalist. How do we get rid of suffering? Oh, make sure there is nothing that can't suffer. But then I came to the realization, okay, the universe is gonna go on without me. I could like press a button and like blow up the entire world, but there's still gonna be life. There's still gonna be conscious beings, sentient beings. It's like, okay, I gotta grow up and be like, there's gonna be suffering in the world and I can't just expect to get rid of it by just, 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 stopping so by, by, by blowing everything up. What I have to do is I got to be part uh, of this ongoing process. 
where we create a world. We create a world, not that we destroy the world so there's no suffering. We create the world where there's no suffering. It goes beyond that. Create a world where people feel beauty and connection and harmony and they, they feel fulfilled. So I realized that's what I'm here for. I have no idea if it's going to happen. I have no idea if anything's going to happen. I could be hit by a bus tomorrow, but as long as I'm here, I'm going to try and I'm willing to make a fool out of myself in the process. So that is what fulfills me. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robin. Amazing. So do you have any final thoughts or anything you'd like to say to the audience? I would only say to your previous comment, I have come to understand with the Hindus uh, that the universe doesn't care what you do or I do. The universe is not interested in right and wrong. And that means that uh, whatever you do, Albert, and whatever we do, we should do for the doing of it. As Gandhi said, attending to the means, not so much because of what we may achieve as how fulfilled we may become. And it is, ironically, through modeling that quality of fulfillment that we probably have the most profound effect on each other. 